environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, This is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast. I'm Gemma Deer. And I am Brandon Gomm. And this is the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment. Um, and today we are here with Scott Slovic. So Scott Slovic is University Distinguished Professor of Environmental Humanities at the University of Idaho, where he has been teaching since 2012. Scott served as the founding president of the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment from 1992 to 1995, and he has been the editor-in-chief of Asley's Journal, Um, interdisciplinary studies in literature and the environment for the past 25 years. He has written and edited numerous books in the environmental humanities and published hundreds of articles, many of them charting the history of environmental literature and eco-criticism. His recent co-edited books include the Routledge Handbook of Eco-Criticism and Environmental Communica Communication and An Island in the Stream, Eco-critical and literary responses to Cuban environmental culture, both of which came out in 2019. He is currently working on two more books, uh, one of which is Reading Cats and Dogs, Nature and Literary Studies, and the other is the Bloomsbury Handbook to Medical Environmental Humanities. Welcome, Scott. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to have a chance to talk with both of you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. It's exciting. So um, I guess let's start, and, and we're going to go way back, uh, and, and hear a little bit about what first got you interested in the environment or environmental studies or, or this, this kind of passion that you've, you've developed over the past 25 years. Yeah, uh, well, so I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, Um, and at the time, uh, Oregon was a, uh, uh, both a, a quiet academic hamlet in the, the far west and also a place where there was a lot of political activity in the 1960s. And, um, uh, you know, the, the burgeoning of the modern American environmental movement, you could say, was happening in the 1960s. And Eugene was a place where many of these conversations were going on. So actually, I was in elementary school on the occasion of the first Earth Day and, nice. and was, uh, you know, I, I was a quiet person, didn't participate very much in discussions or things like that in school. But we had a, a school assembly in uh, April 1970 on the occasion of the first Earth Day. And at one point, the, a teacher said, is there anyone here who would like to say anything? And for some reason, the spirit <laughs> moved me and I stood up for the first time in my life and said, you know, I, well, I'd like to talk a little bit about zero population growth. And this book that I just read recently called The Population Bomb, um, and I had just, it was a book that I saw on the coffee table in my house. My parents had been looking at it, had been reading it. And uh, so I stood up and spoke to other 10-year-olds about reproductive responsibility <laughs> uh, on that occasion. And I guess the rest is history after that. Um, I, I guess there was such an enthusiastic response among the other elementary school kids to the notion <laughs> that they needed to be careful about reproductive responsibility <laughs> that I was um, what motivated to continue uh, speaking to uh, captivated audiences. So, so that, was, that was part of it, being, you so, know, felt, feeling that I had a voice and wanted to be engaged in that way, but also just a lifelong love of animals and being outside and initially wanting to be a zoologist and loving to spend time mm. learning about animals and being with animals, um, but also loving words and in, you know, enjoying the writing process and, and being quite engaged uh, as a writer and editor, even from a very young age, editing my father's research papers that he would hand me in draft form. So, you know, I guess at some point there was a, a coinciding of my passion for the politics of environmentalism and my love for the world itself and for, for language and literature. So it wasn't until years later that it occurred to me that all of these might be brought together 
uh, in the form of ecological literary studies and more broadly the environmental humanities. Yeah, that's great. So can you talk a little bit more about that then? Talk about that transition, that that um, this thing that you were noticing an absence of that, that um, brought you into connecting these, these, you know, at the time, kind of disparate ideas. Yeah, well, you know, as a lifelong reader, uh, you know, I grew up reading literature about animals and the out- outdoor adventure. And um, it, you know, so this, this was just my avocation. It's what I did as a child when I wasn't playing sports or, or um, searching for frogs and salamanders in creeks. I was reading all of this. Um, but when it came to studying literature in school, and this was typically not what we were reading and learning to analyze as as budding literary critics. Um, and it was years later when I was in college that there was also a dawning interest in autobiography and biography as growing areas of, of scholarly concern. So I wrote my senior thesis in college on indirect forms of autobiography, things that, types of texts that were not on auto autobiographies per se, but that were autobiographical. They communicated Hmm. about the the lives of the authors uh, indirectly as uh, personal essays or confessional poetry or self-mythologizing fiction. And so I I was fascinated with that, with the self and the way the self could be represented in story. And then when I was a beginning graduate student, you know how graduate students are always looking for brand new territory that hasn't been trampled on by a lot of other scholars. And it occurred to me, well, I actually walked into the library at Brown University and there was a this bright green book, a collection of wilderness essays by John Muir. And I pulled it off the shelf. It was calling to me. And I opened it up and realized immediately that this was autobiographical writing by someone who was a prominent figure in the environmental movement, the co-founder of the Sierra Club, but I had never seen scholars writing about John Muir, um, you know, in any of the classes or any of the scholarly work I had been reading in recent years. Um, And so, uh, you know, it occurred to me that I could bring my interest in autobiographical narrative to bear on this kind of environmental writing that seemed like relatively fresh territory for scholars. In fact, that was the year 1984, which was the same year that Michael Cohen published his book called The Pathless Way on John Muir as a literary figure. So uh, there was just some strange coincidence of my uh, initial engagement with Muir and my decision to start using uh, some of the vocabularies and methodologies of autobiographical studies um, to to look at Muir's work and the fact that other scholars were starting to think along the same lines. So there was a, a, a nascent momentum already in the early to mid-1980s. Um, and I learned later, of course, as I began to study the history of this field, that there were intermittent bursts of interest in you know studying the literature of nature and all of that for many decades uh, previously, but but there was a, a sense of a, a cresting wave of enthusiasm at that time in the early 1980s. Do you, um, is there anything particular about the 1980s and what was going on that you think really had it catch on, right? Because you talk about these waves and these moments where it was, it would kind of grow and then wane and grow and wane. Um, do you do you want to speculate? Yeah, or, or? yeah. Well, sure. I mean, we could talk for a very long time, and I'm going to try not to to um, <laughs> go on for too long for any of these answers. But yeah, I I could speculate and analyze this, you know, at, at a considerable length. I do think. Well, I mean, if if we were to talk to you know my colleague Greta Gard about this, Greta would say, well, e- ecofeminism was was um, hitting its stride in the 1980s and was beginning to energize the environmental movement and particularly the movement of environmental scholars and writers and and to show how activism and and thinking could be yoked together in powerful ways. So Greta would probably point to the early 1980s as a, a time when it began to seem feasible to be an activist scholar um, from an environmental angle. Um, and um, I would also say that for many of us, 
there in the early 1980s we were beginning to become jaded with um, uh, postmodern theory and um, postmodern you know, literary approaches that seemed hyper internalized and somehow disengaged from the the serious realities of the world the, the um, hum, human politics and also mm-hmm. you know ongoing concerns about the natural world and our relationship with it so for me i would say in the mid 1980s i i was enthusiastic about a brand new literary territory that all kinds of wonderful writing that was emerging at that time and earlier literature that seemed not to have been fully captured and and um, illuminated by literary scholars. You know, it was somewhat marginalized. And part of my excitement was to embrace and and catalog and, and um, celebrate what I thought was a lot of beautiful and fascinating literature. But at the same time, you know, at, at Brown University, where I was working on my PhD, there was a lot of enthusiasm for semiotic theory and postmodern literature. Uh, people like Robert Coover and John Hawkes were teaching there, and, and they would hold meetings of all of the giant figures of postmodern fiction. And uh, and then people would be protesting outside, marching around with signs, <laughs> saying, you guys are completely disengaged with the realities of the world. And somehow that was probably sinking into my consciousness as well. I didn't want to be a disengaged scholar. I wanted to not only study the intricacies and beauties of literature um, and and other art forms, but I also wanted to do something that would have traction out in the world. And so all of that was kind of coming together in my mind as I was a a PhD student. That's great. Mm -hmm. So so moving from there, um, can you tell us a little bit about your kind of transition then into th- this formation of Asley and your early work with them in, in kind of moving from that into this space? Yeah, well, it wasn't really on my mind when I was a, a, a PhD student or a beginning professor uh, that, that I wanted to, to help launch a movement exactly or to, to start an organization. But a- as a PhD student, I began attending many conferences um, and uh, sometimes these were just individual, normally these were just individual sessions at larger conferences where there would be a handful of, of uh, people who happened to be interested in what we called at that time nature writing or, you know, kind of in, environmental approaches to literary mm-hmm. studies. Um, and we began to get the sense over the course of a few years, 1988, 89, 90, 91, uh, a sense of a growing community. We would meet each other at at conferences, and these were often other PhD students like uh, Mike Branch at Virginia and Cheryl Glotfelty at Cornell. And, um, and then we met other people, Don Sheese from from uh, University of Iowa, uh, Sean O'Grady, University of California, Davis. A lot of these people just began to meet each other. And we would also meet some of our senior colleagues who had been lone voices and, you know, as teachers or scholars for many years, fascinated with environmental aspects of literature, but, but not having a sense of community. So in the early, late 80s, early 90s, we, we had this dawning sense of a community and I was on a, a panel focusing on eco-criticism at the American Literature Association conference in uh, 1991. I think it was in San Diego. And David Robinson from Oregon State University, who a very prominent scholar of uh, American transcendentalism, came up to me after the panel and just said, you know, you ought to think about um, creating an organization of some kind. And that he just said that as a sort of aside with no concrete plan for how to do that. And I took that back home with me. And in in the months after that, I contacted Cheryl Glotfelty, who had made an effort in around 1989, I think. She sent out a, a letter to all of the people she had met at conferences proposing that we start using the, the term eco-criticism. And, you know, this was around 1989. And so Cheryl and I began brainstorming about this, and soon we brought Mike Branch into the conversation. And we decided that in October uh, 1992, at the Western Literature Association Conference, we would hold some kind of organizational meeting 
and see if there was any interest in starting a group of some kind. At, at that point, we were actually thinking of calling it the American Nature Writing Society or something along those lines. Um, but we ended up having 54 people who attended out of the several hundred who were at the larger conference. A pretty large percentage of the people at the Western Literature Association meeting had an interest in this approach to literature. Um, we had a packed room in the Sands uh, Casino um, in Reno, Nevada, where that conference was taking place. And and people people mentioned that they had heard that Patrick Murphy was thinking of starting a journal called Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment. Again, this was October 1992. No issues of Isle had yet been published. And so we decided to start a group, but we would align the name with the name of the journal that we knew was about to begin because it seemed broader than nature writing studies and and also, we, we thought maybe there would be some consonance between the journal and the organization, although we didn't think that just in just a few years they would actually become connected with each other in a more formal way. And actually, I would say the, the name of the organization and the journal are the, um, for the study of literature and environment without, without the the word the in there. It's not the environment because we're interested in environments more broadly. Uh, in a, there's a kind of built-in flexibility in the name of Asley. Um, and so, um, you know, at that point, uh, Mike Branch, Cheryl Glotfelty, and I just began, um, you know, reaching out, trying to publicize the organization. Within a few months, this group of 54 swelled to several hundred and you know and and more and more people began to join also two years later i went to japan on a fulbright and you know began talking about this field in japan where there was no formal history of eco-criticism or nature writing studies in fact people would tell me we don't we don't have nature writing in japan we have walking literature, farming literature, fishing literature, um, you know, all of these mountain literature, these very specific subgenres. But within a few months of talking with people and, and uh, kind of uh, energizing the community, there was strong momentum in Japan and, and people wanted to form a Japanese branch in 1994. So very quickly, it, I began to realize that it was possible to excite groups of scholars in different parts of the world because all of us live on the planet. All of us have some reason for caring about the natural world or, or for contemplating our relationship, uh, good or, or less good, with the world. And that there's no society, no, no community that does not have a reason for wanting to explore this further. And so, I mean, the, the rest, I guess you could say, is history. There have been these <laughs> proliferations of new organizations, uh, offshoots of ASLI, or completely independent organizations in many different parts of the world. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later, because I do know a lot about that, and, and mm -hmm. ASLI members may be interested in the internationalization of this field. Yeah, definitely. Um, we should come back to that. I um, that's really cool. I didn't know that uh, that Isley kind of, or, or sorry, Isle, uh, the journal kind of came first, or that they have this more kind of symbiotic relationship. I had always assumed that you know Asley came first, and then the journal was born out of that. But but that's really interesting that they kind of. Um, grew or, or were created kind of in tandem. Um, going back to those those early days in the early 90s, what were the kind of biggest trends that people were thinking about back then? And like, how, how's it, how's the field changed since those early days? Yeah, again, that's a huge topic that I love to talk about and, and write about. And I'll try to, to give the you know, the, the the short version of that. Um, I mean, it, 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 along the lines of what I was saying earlier about the the pushback against postmodernism and and uh, you know an excessive focus on abstract, seemingly um, politically disengaged theory. I would say that in the early years of 
of um, environmental literary studies in the 1990s. And I, even as I say that, I hesitate because I know that people were doing environmental literary studies much earlier than that. David Maisel has his important book um, called A Century of Early Ecocriticism that goes back to 1864 and traces the, the pre-ecocritical or proto-ecocritical lineage up to um, Leo Marx's publication of The Machine in the Garden in 1964. But in the early contemporary version of eco-criticism was an effort to, I guess, um, rehabilitate and acknowledge the significance of environment, explicitly environmental literary texts. And in those days, as I said, we were calling it primarily nature writing. There was a strong focus on nonfiction writing um, about the natural world or about the human psychological response to the natural world. And that seemed like a fairly radical thing to do in those days. It was a pushback against the type of literature that most people were studying in in literature departments, in English departments. So we were attempting to acknowledge and recognize uh, the significance of a type of marginalized literature. And, and that did, it, now that might seem very, very mild and conservative, but it felt a bit <laughs> radical in those days because there were no sessions at MLA and there were no, very few conference panels in general looking at nature writing. So we felt as if we were rescuing a body of significant literature uh, from neglect. Um, and then already within a few years after that, and I, I actually, I, I don't know if I really want to get into all of this right now, but I trace five major phases of eco-criticism mm -hmm. from the early night, from the 1980s up through 2020 when we're speaking right now. And the first phase looked primarily at American and British nature writing, um, focusing on nonfiction. Already by the mid-1990s, a second phase was bubbling up with interest in multi-genre and multi-ethnic approaches. People began to recognize the excessive narrowness of nonfiction nature writing and the fact that there were other important um, cultural voices um, mm -hmm. exploring these relationships between the human and, and the non-human. And we needed to look beyond nonfiction writing in order to acknowledge that type of work. Um, in the early 2000s, a third um, phase or wave began to develop, um, looking more broadly than at, at American or, and or British literature, but, but at um, literature from other parts of the world. So a more comparative approach and an international approach began to strongly emerge in the early 2000s. I should say also in the mid-90s, along with the more multicultural interest, there was a, an increasing awareness of environmental justice as a social movement sure. that, that was represented in literature as well. That environmental justice focus broadened to a more international scope in the early 2000s as post-colonial environmental criticism uh, began to emerge. Um, so we had that third wave beginning in the early 2000s with the increasing internationalization and post-colonial uh, discourse. And then in the uh, late 2000s, around 2008 or so, we, we saw the first scholars begin to write about um, a more material approach. The, 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 the way cultural texts would evoke and respond to the physical world, to the human body and to the physicality of the external world. And that was really the dawning of material ecocriticism around 2008 when Stacey Alemo and Susan Heckman published Material Feminisms. And mm -hmm. Stacey had her article in there focusing on, on material and environmental literary texts. Um, but then I would say uh, um, already a few years, well, the the, the, um, the the material phase is, is the fourth wave. And then uh, roughly around 2011, when Rob Nixon published Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor, there began to be more consciousness of the way that environmental literary studies could actively engage in responding to uh, various types of humanitarian and ecological problems in the world. Um, uh, he writes about writer activists in that 2011 book, um, and he identifies certain literary figures who are writer activists. But I, I think that 
particular book by Rob Nixon also inspired many colleagues in the field to think of themselves as scholar activists, not only doing business as usual, writing literary articles for scholarly journals and monographs, you know, for academic presses and teaching our regular classes to introduce students to the literary tradition, but actually to be engaged in service learning and to use our voices uh, for different uh, forums to 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 write for new media, to uh, reach out and write op-eds, or to write perhaps book-length texts that engaged with our our personal interests and concerns about the world, not only uh, writing on subjects that would be good for our academic careers. So that the fifth wave, which I only began talking about in 2019, actually dates back roughly to 2010, 2011. Often I would recognize in my own efforts to um, historicize the field, I would recognize the dawning or the development of these new phases years later. You can't really see them mm-hmm. happening at the moment. So that's a, a quick sketch of of some of the you know the, the five phases that I think we've gone through from 1980 or so up to 2020. Um, but other people might have slightly different ways of tweaking those. But um, that, that this is what I've written about in various books and articles. Sure. And are those are those five uh, phases or waves kind of um, what you see in the anglophone world, or is this more of a global ph- phenomenon, or how how are things different in in different countries? That's a really great question, great question. and um, I, again, the, it would take a long time to, to pick this apart, um, you know, according to what's happening in many different parts of the world. Um, I, so, some scholarly communities are more cautious and careful, and more, I, I would say, more, they adhere more uh, carefully to certain conventions within their communities. Um, I would say the, the rapid changes within the North American scholarly community perhaps are tokens of the relative flexibility and adventurousness of the scholarly communities in these parts of the world. Um, whereas if we were to try to, to suggest that there should be this public outreach in, in certain scholarly communities, we, we might get a lot of pushback and people would say, well, that's not our job. You know, we're not supposed to be activists. We're not supposed to be journalists. We, you know, we're trained in a very specific discipline. So, um, but on the other hand, I hesitate to use too broad a brush because there are individuals who do things outside of the norm in every single scholarly community that I've seen around the world. And, uh, you know, for instance, I spend a lot of time in China and have done so since 2006. And I'm very interested in and and involved with the Chinese community of environmental scholars, particularly in eco-criticism. And in China, you you have to be somewhat circumspect in the way you approach uh, politically sensitive topics. Um, And many people in China, you know, take what I would say are fairly traditional scholarly approaches, and they're in- interested in new theories, but they're pri- they mainly want to write for academic journals or produce traditional, formal scholarly studies of literature, maybe to, to recognize new voices that haven't been studied yet, and then to offer a kind of textual analysis. On the other hand, when I was speaking with a colleague a, a, a year ago about this work, and I mentioned my own my own feeling that there was a new fifth wave of eco-criticism where, where people were going public with their ideas, writing more op-eds and writing press releases of their work to try to get journalists to pick it up. Um, one of my colleagues in Beijing said, well, this occurred to me many years ago that I wasn't interested in writing traditional scholarship. I was more interested in in helping to raise public awareness. So she told me, she teaches at a very prominent Chinese university, she decided that she preferred to write mini blogs, um, you know, basically Twitter length um, notices about environmental issues, and that in the previous decade, she had published 5,000 of these on websites in China, a place where you wouldn't really expect wow. someone to be branching out and becoming politically engaged as a literary scholar. 
you know, that would have been my assumption. And she completely blew that out of the water. And when I invited her to speak to the class that I was teaching last summer at Beijing Forestry University, the students were interested in this final phase of my class on on this notion of being public intellectuals and using what we learn at universities in order to reach out and mobilize society to to try to do a better job in in stewarding the environment i i invited my colleague to come and speak to the class and they were totally riveted by her presentation and the mini blogs that she posted on the screen and i could see the students all taking notes and and thinking this is the type of scholar i could become so she was are revolutionizing their sense of what scholars do in a society where you have to be particularly careful about the way you you speak out and uh, are involved in a kind of activist scholarship. So I hesitate to to use broad brushes because every time I mm-hmm. start to come up with a characterization of a community of scholars, I find people who who uh, cleverly and powerfully deviate from that that description. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the things that I love about this field is I think you know I mentioned at the very beginning of the of the the podcast maybe or maybe it was our pre-conversation but um just the the diversity of scholars scholars themselves and their ideas and just these amazing and unique ways that people are are taking this kind of very broad field that we're all a part of and and finding their ways to to carve out that path for themselves. Yeah, I like the way you say, you say that, Brandon. I I often when I give a lecture on international approaches to eco criticism, I, I tend to title it uh, "Many Voices, Similar Songs." Um, mm. There are there are um, idiosyncrasies, cultural idiosyncrasies, personal idiosyncrasies, or concerns that emerge in the voices of of these diverse scholars, um, and yet there are a lot of uh, I, uh, what I find to be very moving common themes, uh, common concerns about uh, you know living in some kind of um, healthy harmony with the environment, although most of us fail woefully in achieving that, even though we think, may think we're doing a good job, there are inconsistencies between our actions and our ideas. Um, and yet there's a, a lot of common goodwill that I see in disparate, societies around the world, Australia, Pakistan, um, Finland, Japan, um, you know, South Africa, the, uh, Morocco, the many places where I've lectured, I, I, I find this immediate sense of community with both the creative writers and with the other scholars. Um, we're immediately on the same page. This may be true in many scholarly fields, but I think there's something about literally the common ground of the natural world. We all live mm-hmm. on this planet. Sure. No, I, I've never met a person who didn't live on the earth um, and who didn't, <laughs> as I've written on occasion, who didn't breathe or didn't need some kind of nourishment. Um, and so we all, we start with these common denominators that may overcome the extremely divergent as- aspects of uh, our societies in other realms, religion, language, um, you know, history. Um, nonetheless, we have this common ground. And that's perhaps one of the task of, tasks of those of us who uh, take a more comparative approach to eco-criticism and the environmental humanities, to find that common ground and then also to tease out the meaningful nuances of difference between the, the different ways that we approach the world. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so you've spoken a little bit about the kind of broad global trends and, and waves. And so now I want to ask you to kind of really zoom in. And you've had this very long, extensive career. Um, but I'd like you to pick out one highlight of your career. Um, and also maybe because you've also served as the um, editor for uh, IELTS Journal for 25 years maybe one of your favorite pieces that was published there as well. Yeah, it's it's so difficult, Gemma, to pick out a highlight. Sorry, it's, it's almost, I know it's a hard question. It's almost, you know, I, I, my whole life, my whole career is about seeking highlights, jumping from one highlight to the next. And, um, you know, Brooke Williams, Terry Tempest Williams' um, husband and a fire fine writer in his own right, I once heard him give a lecture 
on Abraham Maslow and the notion of peak experiences. And he actually identified certain types of people as peakers, people who seek one thrilling experience after another. And I really feel mm -hmm. as if my entire career, even starting with graduate school, has been kind of jumping from one, one exciting, you know, momentarily thrilling experience to the next. So I tried to take some notes actually before this conversation. And, you know, I could pluck out an example or two, like, you know, uh, you had a question for me about, you know, what a, a, a one of the highlight, highlights I've had in my experience with Asley has been. And, uh, you know, so, for instance, organizing this joint symposium between Asley Japan and Asley U.S. in 1996, and then Frank Stewart, who organized that together with me from the University of Hawaii, Manoa, um, we, he was able to use a grant we got from the Toyota Motor Corporation to fly the whole conference from Honolulu over to the Big Island to spend the day hiking in Volcanoes National Park. So, I mean, what could be more exciting than than being in the middle of the volcanoes with graduate students and famous scholars, uh, Linda Hogan, David Quammen, um, Sue Ellen Campbell, you know, wonderful, prominent scholars and graduate students and, and other kinds of colleagues um, talking about, at the time, we were talking about um, whether, whether uh, electronic publishing would ever gain traction and whether, <laughs> whether it would ever, we could ever, any of us, contemplate uh, publishing our work online and you know some of the writers who were with us you know drove their feet into the into the um, volcanic dust and said never I will never publish online you know it's, <laughs> it, nothing could be copyrighted if it if it were published online so I'm mean, just having these really exciting and at times anachronistic conversations about uh, you know, well, the future of our field um, in this extraordinary landscape. So that's one example. And then flash forward years later um, to 2019 and to actually travel to China with Brooke Williams and Terry Tempest Williams, their first visit to China, and to introduce Terry to her her um, translator, the translator of her famous book Refuge into Chinese, who's a longtime friend and colleague of mine, a prominent Chinese eco-critic and translator, translator um, named Cheng Hong, who happens to be the wife of the premier of China. Of the, the, uh, she's the second lady of China, essentially. Very prominent yeah. and, and yet deeply engaged with nature writing, a, a wonderful scholar and one of the very best translators from, of American environmental writing envir uh, into Chinese. And to sit there with Terry and... Uh, Cheng Hong and Brooke and you know a, a few of Cheng Hong's colleagues um, in a in a special reception area talking about the future of our field and the relationship between China and the U.S. This was at this was on the, this was the very week that the United States pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement and <laughs> Cheng Hong's husband happened to be in Europe at the time meeting with Macron and Merkel and others essentially saying never fear we're ready to step into the breach. You know, China, yes, the U.S. is behaving very strangely and pulling out of all of these important agreements, but we in China are ready to step forward and, and you know, take on, take on the leadership. So when Terry asked Cheng Hong, um, are you hopeful? Cheng Hong, the second lady of China, said, yes. <laughs> yes, that's all she said, that yes, don't worry. You know, we'll work things out. But it was it was almost the moment when there was a handoff between kind of the American environmental community to the Chinese environmental community that we're we're actually going to lean on you for the next few years at least to to try to do some important work because you know we're struggling so much in our own society in the U.S. Um, so those are just a few examples of the many kinds of uh, moments that I would consider highlights, but. But um, I, I have these highlights a lot in my life. I guess to use Maslow's concept, I'm very much a peaker, always going from one exciting moment to another. Well, it's a it's a good problem to have, right? If you can't, <laughs> if it's hard to choose. Um, and actually, uh, I had the great pleasure of getting to know Terry a little bit over the last couple of years because she's been here at Harvard as well um, in the Divinity School, and I did 
when I first got here, I did a four-week writing seminar with her. Um, and she, I think, really embodies that, um, what you're talking about, about mixing activism with writing. So, you know, she's always been very active at, at protesting, you know, oil development in Utah and really kind of, you know, her work uh, is played out in the way that she she lives and her actions, and I find that hugely inspiring. Um, yeah, that's. Can I say something about that, Gemma? I'm sure. I am very much um, of that mind as well, and I, I think to a great extent I've been inspired by people like Terry and Rick Bass, um, and you know by the entire literary tradition of environmental writing. I mean, even going back to Henry David Thoreau and the idea of uh, protesting against slavery and allowing oneself to be arrested, um, even if, you know, Thoreau was bailed out the next day and immediately went picking huckleberries, um, he too <laughs> represents uh, this this lineage um, of uh, the idea that you should put your actions where your, where your pen is or where your, your keyboard is. Um, and um, and yet, in my own work as a scholar, as an editor, uh, as an organizer of organizations like ASLI and many other uh, comparable groups around the world, I've t always tried to create a large tent and not suggest that eco-criticism, environmental writing, uh, environmental teaching only had to be activist in nature. That I mean, there's also a philosophical, there's an aesthetic you know there there are various other spiritual dimensions that may not be quite aligned with uh, marching in the streets or uh, writing op-eds, and I'm perfectly fine with that. And I I uh, have always tried to be tolerant and encouraging with regard to colleagues who wish to move in these other circles and do their work in in these ways. I you know I think I, I differ from some of my other colleagues within ASLI and within the larger uh, community who feel that there should be a narrower definition of what eco-criticism is, proper eco-criticism and what the, what our methodology should be. Um, but I have always believed in a kind of big tent approach. And from the very early days of ASLI, I remember within just a couple years of founding ASLI, uh, Rick Bass, who was on the advisory board for for Asley and for, for Isle, um, took our membership directory, this is the, the prominent Montana author and activist, took our membership directory, cut out every single name and address, and sent letters, um, often handwritten letters, encouraging members of this new organization to write to their their elected officials about the endangerment of the Yak Valley in northwestern Montana, a fragile ecosystem where there were threatened species. And one colleague wrote a letter to me um, from the East Coast and said, you know, I got this wild letter telling me, you know, to write to my congresspeople. Um, and someone had obviously taken my name from the Asley directory. And I didn't, I thought I was joining a scholarly organization, not an activist organization. And, mm -hmm. and I wrote back in what I hope was a very diplomatic way and just said, sure, if you don't want to belong to Asley, because you don't want to receive mailings like this, that's perfectly fine. You can have your membership dues back. However, you should know that Rick Bass is a very distinguished um, contemporary environmental writer and that by receiving this letter from him and finding out what he's so passionate about, you're actually potentially learning something about the type of literature he writes, that this is the same mind that produces these amazing, uh, fabulistic short stories um, but but at the same time, he's deeply committed to certain causes in, in our society today. Um, so I, I feel that you can actually be both. You can, you can pay mm -hmm. attention to the activist concerns and still be a, a very serious scholar and engage with the, the most uh, sophisticated um, uh, theories and, and critical methods. Um, and I, I can't remember whether that particular person resigned or stayed with Asley, but I think we've now you know, after, you know, some 28 years or so, most people understand that there is a fairly large tent and Asley and journals like Isle embrace a variety of voices, um, which uh, makes a lot of sense to me. 
Yeah, and there's, you know, there's not always a strong division between what is activism and what is scholarship anyway. You know, scholarship can be activism, teaching can be activism. You know, I've found in the kind of years much fewer than you that I've been working on these things that I find that because environmental stuff is always on my mind, it's the kind of conversations I have. And then that ends up with people saying, oh, you know what, since I've talked to you last, I've started eating less meat or I'm, you know, using less plastic packaging. And so I really, for me, I I don't feel like activism is just like in one box of, you know, letter writing and protesting. I think that we can bring activism into the way we think and communicate more broadly um, in our work. Right. And often when we talk about activism, we think that means to walk around with a group of people holding signs or to to write letters that are endorsing Mm -hmm. or or criticizing certain things. But I, I would say there's a a subtler um, activism that's closer to home, which involves our, our personal lifestyle choices. And when mm-hmm. I mentioned Greta Gard earlier, Greta drafted this environmental humanities approach, uh, a letter about the environmental humanities approach to the pandemic that many of us have since signed, signed on to just in the past month that was published recently in Bifrost, the uh, publication of the Nordic Network for, for Climate Studies. Um, just in the past week, it was published. And this letter um, from, from Greta and now from many others suggests that there are several key ways that we might all be responding to these strange circumstances that we're in right now to, to learn from our situation in the world and our reflections on our lives. And the fact that most of us are not traveling at all anymore, including someone like me, who's basically made a career out of traveling to different places and teaching and lecturing and and writing about those travels. Um, So we're not traveling. We might also uh, consider um, not traveling so much when things eventually ease up, the travel restrictions ease up. We may also think carefully about our driving habits and our dietary practices. Where is the food coming from that we eat so casually? You know, in what way can we learn from the pandemic to think more carefully about our relationship with the world and with other species. And I, I'm not sure that that merely changing one's flying, driving, and dietary practices uh, constitutes activism with a bit large A, but it, mm-hmm. it may be a kind of activism with a small A um, in that we're actively reflecting on and adjusting our personal, li- our personal lifestyles in a way that um, enables us to find meaning. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm struck by t- with with this conversation that we're having right now. That's that's you know inevitably coming to terms with w- this moment that we're in right now, um, and and how that developed both out of our conversation through like the evolution of things and um, what what it means to be an eco critic. And so um, I, I'm wondering if maybe you can you can. Sp- speculate or or contemplate where where do you maybe see this field going um do you see maybe more people embracing the activist side of it because um you know the clock's running out you know we're we're getting down to the wire on these changes that we have to make or do you see you know some other other things kind of arising from from either this moment or or possible future moments in some ways yeah, well, Brandon, I hesitate to to use um, uh, phrases like that. The, our time is running out because I mean, no sooner do we say something like that than than people say, "Well, okay, you said we have ten years, and now, <laughs> hey, the ten sure. you hit the ten year mark." I mean, this the 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 people that I mentioned earlier, uh, Paul and Anne Ehrlich, and they're writing about human overpopulation in the 1960s, they were speculating about how much time we had before we hit the Malthusian moment where, you know, there would be some kind of uh, crisis of disease, war, poverty, and then there would be a huge crash of human population. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, many people said, well, yeah, that, you know, there, it really is difficult to determine exactly when that moment might be. So I normally don't uh, uh, speculate about you know, what kind of time limit we have on making radical course corrections. However, um, I do, I do frequently try to reflect on where we're headed as a field and as a society. And I do think um, that, 
there are very striking um, increases in powerful diversification within the field of of um, the environmental humanities and, and eco-criticism more specifically. Diff uh, more songs, more voices, more uh, richness, an increasing richness of perspectives and a, uh, an expansion of the momentum um, that we have in the field to societies where people are are attempting to do this work, but have been thwarted for one reason or another. Um, and and I, you know, I see increasing efforts of our colleagues, both at the student level and at the, uh, the faculty level or the independent scholarly and writer level, um, people wanting to become involved in this global movement, the momentum, to share in the momentum. So I do hope that there will be ways for this to happen. Ironically, at this time when we're not traveling, but we're increasingly using electronic platforms Forms, there we may be discovering ways to facilitate such interactions. Um, we're learning how to do Zoom conferences. In all mm -hmm. of my international work, I, I had not done a Zoom conference until the beginning of May when I participated in, in a, a, a pandemic-related conference hosted by a university in India. Um, and I've lectured in places like Iran um, via Skype before, um, without going there, but I could imagine our colleagues who've not previously been able to attend a large ASLI conference in the U.S. finding ways to participate virtually um, that may contribute to the momentum we, we see in diversification. I also imagine increasing interdisciplinary um, uh, connections and interactions, and I think a lot of us for many, many years have given lip service to interdisciplinarity um, in fact, it's in, embedded in the very name of the journal um, that we published for ASLI. Um, and yet, um, I, I think there will be more and more adventurous interdisciplinary collaborations uh, of various kinds. Um, and I, I won't go into too many details about that, except to say that the new movement of um, empirical eco-criticism you know, that is being um, spearheaded by people like Alexa Weich von Mosner, Matthew Schneider Meyerson, Wojciech Mowetsky, and, and others, um, you know, in, in various parts of the world. They're, they're, used, they're bringing together the methodologies of the social sciences and the concerns of the environmental humanities to study audience responses to texts and things like that. And I've been interested in that since the very early days of my work as an eco-critic, where I wanted to know what is all of this good for? What, how do people really respond? You know, what, how are they reacting to texts? And the fact that actually I come from a, a family of scholars, my father is a, is a psychologist uh, and you know, has done a lot of the groundbreaking work in decision-making and risk perception, and he and I began talking in the early 1990s about how to design studies so that I could test my students' reactions to texts. So finally, you know, several decades later, there's actually a, a, a welling movement of empirical eco-criticism with many scholars actively bringing together these methodologies. So that may just be an example of the, of the, the deep convergence of fields that I expect mm -hmm. to see more of in the environmental humanities. Um, I also think that maybe we're moving in the direction of data studies or information studies. Uh, I imagine my, my high school English teachers and my undergraduate professors would be shocked and horrified to hear that I'm now more interested in data than I am in, in poetry. Um, but I, I view poetry as a form of data or information. And so many aspects of our lives are about receiving signals from the world, from, from the human realm or the non-human realm. And, and how does the human mind receive and process these signals, this information, and then how do we in turn communicate that? I, I would call all of this information studies or data studies, which is becoming a very big field in itself. So I imagine that, that scholars from the environmental humanities, including people like Heather Hauser and Ursula Heise and others who've written along these lines, and even Rob Nixon, whom I mentioned earlier in, in Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor, he, one of the key ideas in that book is apprehension. How do we apprehend information? How do we grasp it and process that information? Um, and to me, that's becoming one of the essential questions that we 
in our particular field are well positioned to explore and begin to answer uh, so that we can have a seat at the table with our other uh, scholar other scholarly colleagues in the environmental humanities and the and environmental studies more generally and in decision making situations where people wonder why the public isn't responding in certain ways to things mm-hmm. that they know to be um, going on in the world and if we understand data and the human mind we might be able to help answer these questions why why the public or why decision makers are not responding as we might anticipate them to respond um, um, because we understand some of the the complications in the the communication of information so those are mm-hmm. a few of my speculations um, but um, you know i I guess one thing one bit of advice that I would offer to other people who are just entering the field is that you expect to be surprised and to be kind of blown off course by interesting new developments and don't um, kind of keep yourself so thoroughly um, embedded in a particular track that you're unwilling to allow yourself to drift off course and explore new things. I think one of the exciting aspects of this career that I that I'm well, I'm right in the middle of, even though I'm ending my time as editor of Isle, I'm still mid-career as I see it. And I, one of the exciting things I've learned is that you can often find yourself challenged and excited by, by some brand new suggestion that people give you, by a new publication, by an invitation that may seem to dr- uh, drag you out of your primary area of work. But I guess I've always been willing to take risks and to try something new and to say, okay, I haven't written on that subject before, but I can see why that's an important idea. And I'm willing to kind of put my foot in my mouth and try to figure it out as I go (laughs) along and do my best to come up with a new idea, um, which may end up being a major new direction for my own work and for what I encourage my students to do. So be adventurous, take risks, um, expect to change course over your, the time that you're doing this work, whether you're primarily focusing on your teaching or on your scholarship or your activism or all three. Yeah, wonderful advice. Um, I am very mindful of the time. We, we could talk all day, but I think we should start uh, wrapping this up. So um, I want to just ask you briefly kind of a bit about what you're working on now. Um, so I mentioned in the intro the book Reading Cats and Dogs, which sounds like a play on raining cats and dogs um, to me. <laughs> um, so maybe you could say a bit about that. And then also this handbook to medical environmental humanities, which sounds like it um, is one of these convergences of disciplines that you were just talking about. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Well, so I, I, at the moment, I'm working on on actually not two, but three edited books that the, the titles mm-hmm. got mixed together. In addition to reading Cats and Dogs, which is a basically an exploration of companion animals it, as represented in literature from various parts of the world. Um, um, I'm also working on a, a volume called Nature and Literary Studies. It's a separate book for the Cambridge Critical Concept Series, where um, Peter Ramin and I have asked so about approximately 28 colleagues from different parts of the world to write about um, particular um, bodies of literature, uh, medieval literature, um, postmodern digital technology, digital texts, digital texts, um, and various other literary traditions, the pastoral tradition, and so forth. And we've asked colleagues to to write um, authoritative essays on the importance of nature within these particular branches of textual studies. Um, Again, it's for the Cambridge Critical Concept Series, uh, focusing on the idea of nature. Um, The Reading Cats and Dogs book, well, yeah, it's a spinoff of my own long interest in in animals of all kinds, but I spend a lot of time with my German Shepherd running with her every day and learning from her. I'm, she's kind of my mentor. She te- I try to try to allow her to teach me things. She's named after one of my professors, actually, when I was a, a visiting scholar in Germany as my, on my first Fulbright. Um, his, my professor was an Alexander von Humboldt scholar named Hanno Beck, and I, so I named my dog Hanna after him. Um, I don't think he's living anymore, but I don't know what he would think about having me name a dog after him. But still, I meant it as a sign of respect, because really, I think 
think she's much wiser than I am in many ways. And um, but it turns out that in many cultures around the world, um, animals are very important uh, companions to human lives, and and this is true also of writers and artists who derive a lot of meaning from these relationships. So um, I initially had planned to ask several colleagues of mine or to encourage several colleagues from France, Brazil, and Lebanon, who are all uh, extremely passionate about cats, that they might do this book. And then they drafted me to work with them. Um, and it's become <laughs> a primary uh, task for me at the moment to, to help um, coordinate this collection of um, voices from everywhere from South Africa to China to uh, France and Brazil, um, people writing about companion animals. And then the medical and environmental humanities, it's, uh, this is a book inspired by my longtime collaborators from India, uh, Swarnalata Rangaranjan and Vidya Sarveswaran. We've done several uh, books together, including Eco-Criticism of the Global South and um, you know various other volumes. But this one, they, they proposed that we try to explore the relationship between human physical and mental health and our environmental experiences. So we initially proposed a smaller book, and then Bloomsbury Academic asked us to enlarge this to a, a large handbook with some 30 contributors um, on various aspects of public health, mental health, and bodily health um, as related to cultural studies. So Mm -hmm. we're attempting to weave together these um, uh, parallel disciplines in much the way that, that Swarna and Vidya and I attempted to bring together environmental communication studies and eco-criticism with the handbook we did for Routledge a couple years ago. Um, And I should say that for me, one of the particularly interesting aspects of the medical environmental handbook is how just in the past year, a number of colleagues have stepped forward and said that they're beginning to study pandemics and viruses and, you know, Mm -hmm. the literature of viruses or the literature of pandemics. And it turns out, yes, in addition to Mary Shelley and Peter Heller, there's actually an entire genre of pandemic lit. And uh, so people are writing about that kind of thing for this book as well. So those are the three edited works that that I'm doing, but I'm also working on various other books on on, uh, 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 empirical eco-criticism and cognitive... um, uh, eco-narratology um, related to some of my own interest in in the way texts communicate and what are the psychological processes or or the psychological barriers to gathering information and and then also I'm inter- very interested in this notion of eco-critics um, going public and what does it mean to be uh, writing for non-conventional forums and and maybe mm-hmm. teaching in ways that are a little bit out of the norm, uh, like service learning, maybe at the lower divisions, but even at the graduate level, I when I'm teaching graduate seminars nowadays, I always have my students write op-eds about their work. They'll write a scholarly article, a, a seminar paper, and then I say, now you have to write an 800-word op-ed based on your research in which you're speaking to the larger public about the significance of, of your work for things that are happening in the world right now. And so go this idea of going public. And I've written a number of these op-eds myself, and I'm also writing some theoretical pieces on what it means to teach and do scholarship in the humanities in this public-facing way. So hoping to turn that into a monograph as well. But um, yeah, so even as I literally prepare to hand off the baton for Isle in, in the coming week, in the coming week, you're catching me just on the verge of handing off something that I've been doing for a quarter century. Um, I, I think you have the sense that, uh, that I have full momentum and I'm working on many other things and I, it's not like I'm going to be at a loss for activities to keep me busy uh, in the future. So before we wrap up, we can't let a guest get away without asking at least one um, kind of fun general question. Um, and so we've got a list of 12 here. I'm going to roll a die and, and we'll ask you um, whichever one comes up. So we have number two, which is what's your favorite outdoor space? I think you already have the sense that I'm terrible I... at this favorite game. I have no, <laughs> I, uh, How many hours do you have? for me to 
to think through the process <laughs> of trying to decide what my favorite outdoor space is. Well, um, one of my favorite places. Let let me um, compromise and give you one of my favorite places. That works. Um, yeah, that works. I'm so even though I'm a professor at the University of Idaho, I spend a lot of time in Sun River, Oregon, outside of Bend, Oregon, which is um, mm. it's a place full of bike trails and surrounded by national forest and uh, with a view of the uh, Oregon Cascade Mountains. And, and the Deschutes River flowing through. So um, this is a, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time running and exercising, being out in the world and thinking about the, what I'm teaching and what I'm writing about. So for me, um, some kind of physical activity is important. And I understand that, that uh, you know, people have many different ways of priming themselves to do their professional work. But so for me, running is really important. And this is just a, a fantastic place for running on these, you know, 30 some miles of, of bike and, and uh, mm. hiking trails. So uh, I, I would say this area of the central Oregon high desert is one of my comfort spaces, but I've almost never met a place I didn't like. So that's a really dangerous question to ask. So that's that's a good that's a good answer though. That's a good answer. I like good. Well, like uh, Brandon and Gemma, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. Um, I'm sorry if I rambled on too long with some of these. No, it's been it's been wonderful. Yeah, I've 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 enjoyed like Gemma said earlier in the episode. I enjoyed learning about some of the the kind of origins of of this organization and. Um, you know, I've been a part of it for about four or five years now. And, um, you know, but just hearing more about those early years and, and that evolution and stuff has been great. So thank you so much for, for talking with us. Sure. There's, yeah. there's, there's gotta be some benefit to being a, kind of a, an elder to, to have some institutional <laughs> history. So I'm happy to share that. Thank Thanks you so much. so much for joining us, Scott. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks to everyone who's listened. Uh, if you'd like to propose uh, a podcast episode, you can email us at uh, asley.ecocast at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is at asley underscore ecocast. Uh, thanks so much, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>